0: John 6, 60 to 71. You're using a pew Bible. The page number is 77 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? But Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together
1: we come to God's Word. Lord, we thank you. We do thank you for the fact that it is a a relatively short time that we have to endure uh, living life in this world with these bodies of death. I thank you that in your mercy you have limited the time span of our lives and That by your grace, uh, fear of death is removed because Christ has died in our place under your judgment, under the wrath, Father, of a holy God receiving in himself the justice that the law demands against sinners like us. Jesus has taken the sting of death away from us. And now we can look forward to the moment of our departure, the moment of our exodus, As Peter says, the the time of putting off the flesh. Lord, we can look forward to that and hope and rejoice in the freedom that we have in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the victory that is yours and that you have, by your mercy, extended to us. Lord, your victory is our victory. The surety of our life is your resurrection from the dead. The guarantee of our acceptance in the presence of the Father is the fact that you have ascended into the presence of the Father as our representative, the one who's gone before us. And you sit in his presence, and you intercede for us even now. Lord, I thank you for your intercession. I thank you that you keep your mind, you keep us in mind and in your heart, and you pray for us that our faith might not fail until the day when our faith becomes sight. Lord, thank you that you will finish the good work that you have begun. You will will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray you'd help us rejoice in that, Lord. Help us rely upon those realities and um, bless us during our sojourning, Lord. May we May we find joy in the path, though there there are many trials and many rocks in this path and many thorns that will brush up against us and, and poke us from the side. Nevertheless, there is great joy in walking this path in fellowship with you. Lord, help us know it more fully and encourage one another in that joy more and more as the days roll on. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Open your word to us. Open our ears, minds, and hearts to hear, understand, and receive. And encourage us as we, as we move forward to willingly obey. But we love you, and we want to love you more. So please do that work among us this morning. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Uh, today, again, its uh, sermon title is, Did I Not Choose You? and we've tagged on a part two to that. I didn't know whether to put a comma in between question mark and part two or not. I should have written to someone and asked, but uh, it didn't look right to me and Daniel, so Daniel just removed it and we decided to go with it. So, uh, If anyone would like to let me know the proper rule for that in this situation, I'd love to hear it, but not, not right now. Um, did I, did I Not Choose You? Part 2. Now again, it might, it might be better or it might have been better to title these messages last week and this week uh, True and False Disciples. Um, because that is what we see presented so clearly here at the end of John chapter 6. We see the difference between true disciples and false disciples. And it really boils down to The way in which they respond to the teaching of Christ, that ultimately that is what manifests the difference between one who is a true disciple and one who is a false disciple, one who is following Christ with true motives and true and pure reasons, I guess in pure devotion, and those who are following Christ for some other reason, impure uh, motives or false devotion. This is something, as I mentioned last week, this is something that John is very concerned to make sure that we understand. We're going to come across this very much in the Gospel of John. We've already seen it multiple times, that there are those who have a kind of faith in Jesus that's not a genuine faith, right? Remember in John chapter 2, there were many of the Jews in Jerusalem who were believing in Jesus, but Jesus on his part was not believing unto them. That is, he was not entrusting himself to them because their faith was not a genuine faith. Here we find another illustration of that, and we're going to see it again and again as we move forward in this Gospel, that there are people who genuinely think they are followers of Christ, to whom Christ says, I don't know you. Not everyone who appears to be a follower of Christ is really a true believer. And I I want to say that and make it clear that this is not a hobby horse that Seth is on, This isn't my soapbox. This is what the Gospel of John is seeking to communicate to us, to confront us with, right? For, For at least a couple of different reasons. Number one, because by this time, the Apostle John knows and recognizes that within the church, there are going to be many people who think they are truly believers who will not find out that they're not true believers until the day of judgment or until the day they pass on and go stand before the Lord. And he wants to confront that prior to that moment. He wants to confront those who are in the corporate gatherings of the saints and he wants to to challenge them and say, Listen, are you sure that you know the Lord? Is your faith truly in him or not? Don't be deceived. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul's going to say the same thing. Examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. John wants to make sure that those who are among the believers who, who have a false faith are confronted with that reality. And in a sense, given an opportunity to examine themselves and come out of that false security, that false hope, and enter into a true faith in Christ. But there's another reason for it that's not so... I don't want to say that's negative that's not negative right to challenge a false believer and bring try to bring them into true faith is not a negative thing it's a very loving thing but on the flip side John is presenting the difference between true and false believers throughout the gospel of John so that those who are true believers would have their assurance of salvation increased And that's why he always presents in these moments when we see these these glimpses of the difference between those who truly believe and those who don't, those who have genuine faith and those who do not have genuine faith, when we see that, John gives us all kinds of examples of of what the true faith looks like over and against what the false faith looks like. It's so that we would be assured, those of us who have true faith, that we've truly come to know the Lord, we're in his saving hand, and there's nothing that can bring us out of it. And so... I've already gone on on that longer than I intended, but I, I did want to point out, I take this opportunity to direct your attention to the 1689 Baptist Confession, every moment that I have, that I can do that. I, I want to do that, because I think this is a precious document, it's a, it's a precious expression of true uh, faith, and I believe a, a genuine, though summarized, presentation of biblical doctrine, uh, what the Bible teaches about the Christian faith. Well, in the 1689 Confession in, in uh, chapter 14, paragraph 1, it's not like I'm quoting law here to you guys, but 1689, chapter 14, paragraph 1, it says that the, the elect of God, they are given the grace of faith, which enables them to believe to the saving of their souls. Now, our Baptist forefathers, I am a Baptist anyway, my Baptist forefathers, I'm proudly a Baptist. I think that's biblical Christianity. But but that's okay. If you don't agree with me, it's all right. But the elect of God are given the grace of faith. Notice it's a gift that they're given. It's not something that they drum up in themselves by their own ability. This is a work of the Spirit of Christ and it is ordinarily wrought in them. That is, it's it's brought about in them and created within them by the ministry of the Word. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about this grace of faith that enables us to believe to the saving of our souls. Now notice the difference there. There's faith, which is something given to us, and then there's the action of faith, which is believing. Faith is given, Believing is acting on that faith. We believe unto the saving of our souls. All of that is seen as a, a work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of a true believer, and it is normally accomplished or wrought within them by the ministry of the Word. You see the connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And uh, we'll, get, we'll see more of that in just a minute. That, that is how the, the 1689 and uh, the Baptist forefathers would see uh, the grace of faith. What is saving faith? Well, it's a gift that's given, created by the Holy Spirit within your heart, given by the Spirit of God, wrought through the ministry of the Word so that you can believe to the saving of your souls. Now, that's different than what paragraph 3 describes as a kind of faith that belongs only to temporary believers. So uh, 1689, paragraph, or uh, chapter 14, paragraph 3, it says that, This faith in the elect, which is brought about by the Spirit of God, is of a different kind or nature from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Now, in your theology, in your understanding of God and of the Christian life, do you have a category that can rightly be described as uh, people who are temporary believers? That is, they, they, have a, they have a measure of faith. They have, as, as Jesus put it in the parable of the soils, they receive the word gladly and with joy initially. But as it springs up, the roots are shallow, and the sun comes up and burns it out, and eventually they burn out. They fall away. Right? That's what the 1689 is pointing to here, that there are. it's a legitimate reality that there are people within the church who have a kind of faith that is only temporary. In other words, it does not last, it does not endure, it does not continue, rather it falls away. So there's a difference, there's a different kind of faith because eventually this kind of faith comes unraveled and departs from Christ, whereas true saving faith, though it's often assailed and many times weakened, it eventually gets the victory. And grows up more into Christ who is both the author and the finisher of that faith. All right, so so what, we, what that's describing in chapter 14 of 1689 is, is just what we see illustrated right here in John chapter 6. That there are temporary believers who eventually will fall away because of the teaching of Christ and its demands upon them. It's too much. But then there are the elect who are given the grace of faith to the salvation of their souls, and they continue to believe in Christ as the author and perfecter of that faith. So we could look at this in John 6 as we could title it uh, true and false believers. All of that was getting to that point. We could title this true and false believers. Probably some overkill on that explanation, but that's all right. But I do want to point out that the reason I didn't go with that title is because the main emphasis here is not so much on the response of the people as it is on the reason behind their response. So you've got two different groups of disciples responding in one of two ways. You have one group of disciples responding with unbelief as Jesus lays his teaching more clearly upon them, and eventually they depart and fall away. Then you've got another group of disciples who are more convinced and more assured of the truth of what Jesus is teaching as he teaches it, and they remain, they abide, they continue with Jesus, right? Now, that's true, and that is is presented to us here in John 6, but the emphasis of this final section of John 6 is the why. Why does one group fall away and the other group abide? Why is it that one group does not have genuine faith in the Lord and stay with Him, and the other group does have genuine faith and they abide with Him? We started looking at that last week from verses 60 and 61 that one group of disciples, or at least those who are called disciples, they are complaining about what Jesus has been teaching and they are grumbling about it. Jesus says in John 6, 61 that they are even offended by it because this is a hard saying and who is able to hear it? Right? And we saw the three reasons that Jesus gives for uh, why they were not able to believe in his teaching. One was that the, verse 63, the Spirit is the one that gives life and the flesh profits nothing. Right? They were asking for more signs, more give us more bread, show us more wonders. Jesus says, even if you could see the Son of Man ascending to where he came from, even that would not be enough to make you believe. Why? Because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Even if you could eat the bread that I would give you with your flesh, and you could see with your own fleshly eyes the Son of Man ascending into the glory from which He came, even then you would not believe because the flesh does not profit the soul. You must have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, the the Lord and Giver of life. He must be present in your soul, giving you life if you are to have true faith in Jesus Christ. So it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing and they're not believing because the spirit of life is not at work within them. John 6, 63 goes on to say a second reason. Jesus says, relating to that first and the words that I have spoken to you, that is the teaching that I've given, these these words are spirit and these words are life. But it's only spirit and life for those in whom the spirit of God is giving life. 1 right? Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God because it's foolishness to him. He can't, as it says here, uh, he can't even know them because they're spiritually discerned. A natural man cannot receive the spiritual and life-giving words of Christ because he doesn't have the Spirit of God enabling him to discern the truth. But we, 1 uh, Corinthians 2.12, we are those who have been given the Spirit of Christ so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. See, it's the ministry of the Spirit that awakens us to be able to understand and discern the reality of Jesus' teaching. The Spirit's not doing that work in the lives of these people, and therefore they can't discern the truth. And then he gets to the ultimate point in verse 65, when he says to them, it ultimately comes down to this. As they themselves had confessed in verse 60, they were not able to hear and receive and listen to the teaching of Jesus. And they, they couldn't understand how anyone else would be able to hear and listen and receive the teaching of Jesus. Who, this is a difficult teaching. This is a difficult saying. Who can listen to it? Well, in verse 65, Jesus states very clearly, no one can listen to it. No one can come to me unless... It has been given to that person by my Father. And so what we've seen is just Jesus explaining very straightforwardly what's going on here. Why are they responding to his teaching in unbelief? Well, Jesus explains these reasons why they weren't believing very clearly. It's not because he hadn't taught them clearly enough. It wasn't because he hadn't done enough to prove himself to them. The problem was in their own minds. They were still... They were still fleshly-minded. They were those who, in whom the Spirit of God was not working and teaching them spiritual truths because that grace had not been granted to them by the Father. Now, I understand that's a very heavy and that's a very weighty reality, and we've tried to deal with that over a number of weeks. I'm not going to go into to all of that now. But Jesus is very clear and unambiguous and declaring to this group of people why they were not able to believe in him. Ultimately, it's because the Father had not granted that grace to believe and be saved to them. Now we see in verse 66 how these temporary believers respond to that statement. The vast majority of those who call themselves disciples and those who are seen as disciples, at least ostensibly, says here that they depart and they chose no longer to follow him. Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, this response proves, at least in the language of the confession that we looked at just a minute ago, that these people were temporary believers. Now, it was specifically those last comments of Jesus in verses sixty. One to 65, it was particularly those last comments that convinced these these people that they had heard enough. It was hard enough to accept Jesus coming down from heaven. It was hard enough to accept the teaching that he would have to give his flesh for the life of the world, and then that they would have to eat his flesh if they wanted to receive the life that he came to give. That was difficult enough, but then to add to it all, with such unambiguous words that the reason they did not understand or receive his teaching was because the Father had not granted it to them. That was more than they could handle. That was the last straw. Right? Because who is Jesus talking to? Is he not talking to the people who are described as the chosen people of God? Didn't they have the Torah and the promises of God, including the promise in Malachi that just as I swore to you when I brought you out of Egypt, so it is even now my spirit is dwelling in your midst. And here Jesus is saying the reason you can't believe, the reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because this Holy Spirit is not teaching you what I'm saying. The Father who brought you out of Egypt, who gave you these promises, is not granting for you to understand who does this man think He is? Telling us that we don't understand His words because we don't have the Holy Spirit. And then being so audacious as to say that if we don't come to Him, then we won't have life with God. That's too much for them. And so it says that they went back, that is, they they turned back to what they had left behind in order to follow him. It's a very peculiar word. They turned back to what they had left behind, and they no longer walked with him. There's a word for that in the New Testament that describes exactly what happened in verse 66. Do you know what that word is? Yeah, I heard it. Say it louder. Yeah, apostasy. That's right apostasy, they turned away and no longer stood with him. Now, before we move on from that verse and from that reality, I want to point out a couple of things from this verse that we should take to heart as a room full of people professing to be disciples of Christ. Two things about the nature of discipleship. Number one, even though verse 66 is telling us about people turning away from Christ, it includes a statement that captures the essence of true discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? How would you answer that? You don't have to answer it out loud right now, but just think in your minds. How would I answer that question if someone at a bus stop asked me, you know, I've heard about these crazy people called Christians, and they talk about being a disciple of Jesus. What does that mean, to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, I think that verse 66 gives us a pretty clear picture of what it means to be a disciple in describing what these people were turning away from. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Well, in a very real sense, it means that you have left things behind in order to follow or walk with Jesus. You have left things behind in order to walk with Jesus. Now, these people in John 66 were turning away from that, weren't they? They were turning away from Jesus and going back to what they had left behind, They were choosing not to walk with Jesus anymore. What does that mean? It means they were choosing not to be his disciples anymore. That tells us that at the essence, the heart of of true discipleship is a lifestyle of walking with Jesus. Now, I know that that happens in our lives in in a way that is different than at this time in Jesus' ministry, right? Because at this time in Jesus' ministry, these people are physically seeing and physically walking and following after Jesus. I'm I'm not trying to say that that's exactly how we do it, but there is a correlation between the two. Being Christ's disciple is a moment-by-moment walking with Jesus, It is is a moment-by-moment act of feeding on His Word as a constant instructor. It's relying on His Spirit as a constant companion and taking every step in your life as a purposeful, conscious pursuit of walking in fellowship with Christ. That's discipleship. That must be worked out in a lifestyle of learning from Him, of obeying Him in faith, of seeing Him more clearly and believing upon Him more wholeheartedly with more devotion and more sincerity, you are increasing in your faith-filled attachment to Him. Continuing to feed upon Him and continuing to experience His life in you more fully. That is the path of discipleship. And the moment that you turn from that, is the moment that you turn away from being a true disciple. Just as with this crowd, even if on the outside you appear to be following Jesus, if in your heart, in your inner being, you are not pursuing this life of walking with Christ, then you are not on the path of discipleship, you are on the path of apostasy. And you need to understand that. What is your life to be characterized by? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that you walk with Christ. Moment by moment in every situation that the Lord brings about in your life, you are walking through that moment with Jesus. You're heeding His teaching. You're putting it into action. You're following through with what would be pleasing in His eyes in that moment. That's discipleship. And that touches every part of your life. The way that you do school, kids. The way you listen and obey your parents. Discipleship happens right there. Following Jesus happens right there. Are you doing that? Wives and husbands, the way you interact with one another, the way you speak to one another, the way you treat each other, in those difficult moments when your emotions are trying to get you to turn away from your spouse and grow hard against him or her. It's in that moment that discipleship, the demands of following Christ, come upon you. And it's in that moment you either follow through with being a true disciple of the Lord, or you turn your back away from following through on His commands. I believe in a very real sense That at the heart of discipleship is obedience. Faith-filled, loving obedience to Jesus Christ. When you turn away from that, when you you have this... now, Now listen, I know we all stumble in many ways. We all sin in many ways. Of course there are moments in our lives when we turn away from that and we are not living as true disciples. But when that becomes the consistent pattern of your life... And you no longer want to turn back to the Lord. You no longer want to be in His Word and, and real do the, do the hard, hard work of digging with His Word into your life and finding those areas where you are not conformed to His image and trying to, to come through with an understanding of how to live out His will for you. When you stop doing that, you have stopped walking on the path of discipleship and you are on the high road to apostasy. That's exactly what happened with this crowd. They weren't following him for the sake of knowing him, for the sake of learning from him, or or because they loved him and they truly discerned the glory of God in him. In their hearts, they were only committed to following him so long as he conformed to their expectations. They were only committed to following Jesus so long as he continued meeting their desires. What about when Jesus doesn't meet the desires that you want him to meet? Are you still his disciple in that moment? When you lose the house, when your car breaks down, when you find out something about your spouse that's challenging and difficult to handle... When marriage doesn't happen the way you think it do or should and it, your children raising them does not go through the way that you think a Christian would experience or, or even your life situation with your neighbors and friends and family, it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would. When Jesus doesn't meet those kinds of expectations, is He still Lord over your life? And is He still worthy of your obedience or not? Well, for this crowd, He wasn't. Their discipleship was never deeper than what Jesus could do for them in meeting their desires and their needs. It never got to the heart level. It was never about a recognition of who he is or an acknowledgement of him as true Savior. It was never about the joy of knowing and walking with him and what happened. Eventually, they apostatized and turned away. Now, I bring this out because I want you to understand. Please listen to me. I want you to understand that there's no one in this room who has the right to think that that cannot happen to you. There's no one in this room that is so safe and so secure that you don't need to heed the warnings against apostasy. We live in a time when when I I don't understand it exactly. But there's this view of justification by faith that has somehow undermined and completely gutted the need for real sanctification to happen in our lives. Romans chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it tells us that if sanctification is not happening, we will not be inheriting eternal life. No matter what we think about justification by faith. If you don't take heed and pay closer attention and devote yourself to cultivating a closer walk with Jesus, then not only can apostasy happen to you, it will happen to you. And that leads to a second lesson that we want to draw from verse 66 about true discipleship. At the beginning of this interaction, it seemed that Jesus had thousands of dedicated, devoted followers, didn't it? leaving behind their families, leaving behind their jobs, crossing the lake, frantically trying to find him. Jesus, how did you, you get here? Where have you been? Looking for Jesus. And by the end of the chapters, we're going to see in a minute, how many are left? Twelve. Twelve. And even one of them is a devil, Jesus says. Now there's a lesson there that I think we should take to heart. It's not about how you begin the Christian life. It's how you end that ultimately matters. The start is important. You need to start the Christian life, it's absolutely necessary. But the start means nothing without the finish. So, for example, we see this all through Scripture. Matthew 24, 10-13. Jesus warns His disciples that a time is coming when there will be many who are offended over Him. There will be many false prophets who will arise and will lead many astray. Believers will be hated by everyone, Jesus says. But, notice verse 13. It is the one who endures, or the one who remains until the end, that is the one who will be saved. Now, I am not going to change Jesus' language here to make it fit with some people's understanding of justification. Jesus says very clearly here, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, if you endure to the end, then you have been saved. I won't change the tense of that verb. (laughs) All right? If you endure to the end, it's the one who endures to the end, that is the one who will be saved. Who will be saved. Future focus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We are His house, if what? If we make a profession of faith and are baptized and continue living... Apparently, as a disciple in the church? No. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and rejoicing of hope in Christ firm until the end. Until the end. Until you run across the finish line at the end of your life when you take your last breath in this world. Discipleship demands that you continue holding fast to Jesus until that final moment. That's a very active thing. It's a gut wrenching lifestyle. It's difficult. It's hard. That's why Jesus describes it as taking up your cross and following Him. It is not fun to get up on a cross and be crucified. It's not easy to take up the cross every single day and lay down on it and pray, Lord, crucify me today. Put me to death so that I might live with your Son. It's not easy. But it's the one who holds fast and holds holds firm to their hope until the very end. That is the one who is part of Christ's house. His household. See the same thing, Hebrews six eleven, right? Uh, to Hebrews six eleven and twelve. We desire that each one of you would show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you would not be sluggish, but that you would imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Now notice that we have to have patience. And we have to have endurance, we have to continue on if we are going to inherit the promises. Verse 11 says it has to be until the very end. So the implication is if we don't pursue diligently and learn to imitate the faith and patience of those who have gone before us until the end, then we ourselves will not be among those who inherit the promises. Now, how are you going to do that? That's the, that's the call of discipleship. It's not about how you begin. It's about how you end that ultimately matters. How are you going to, in other words, we're in this for the long haul. We're not in this, we're not in this life of following Christ for the spurts and the quick, uh, the, the quick sprints. Right? You're in this long, hard race and you've got to be ready to expend whatever is necessary in order to finish that race well. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do to find the strength that you need to finish the race well? Jesus has already given us that answer in John 6, hasn't he? In John 6, 56, Feeding ourselves on Christ is what enables us to abide in Him. John 6.57, it's feeding upon Him that enables His life to be manifest in us. How are you going to live the long-haul Christian life and be faithful to the end? By feeding on Christ more and more diligently as you go. Where are you practically being distracted from living that kind of life with Jesus right now? And I'm not, don't look down in shame. Like, look at me. I'm okay. I can handle your eyes. I got sorrow in my own eyes. Hopefully you can handle that. Where are you not following with Christ in this way right now? you know, you know there are tangible areas in your life where you are not walking with Jesus the way you should. What are they? Don't just let them bounce around in your mind and think about them for a moment, and then when you walk out of here, they're gone, and you don't think about that anymore. Write them down right now. What areas, that's why you have a sheet of paper in front of you, so you can write down practical things about your walk with Christ that you can work on in the week ahead. It's not so that you can regurgitate the outline that I'm giving you in this sermon. I don't give a rip if you can never recite the outline of this sermon ever again. What I care about is are you holding fast to those things that the Spirit of God is working into your life right now in the message? What areas of your life is the Spirit of God bringing to your attention where you can say, yes, that is an area where I am not abiding with Christ? That is an area where I am not pressing after the demands of discipleship, and I need the Lord's grace and help to help me do it. Write it down and go work on it. That's discipleship. Yeah, can I, I have got a whole section that goes along with that, and I'm not. I'm not going to go through all of it, but just. When you've identified those kinds of areas where you are not following through with walking with Christ, right? John 6:66, 6, walking with Christ, leaving things behind, walking with Jesus, when you've identified areas in your life where you are not walking with Him, what are you supposed to do with those areas? You leave them behind. That's exactly right. You leave them behind. And you know where that gets really challenging? Is where those things that you have to leave behind are not things that are, are like external things attached to you. It's when, the, it's when they're actual parts of you that you've got to hack off and gouge out and cast away from you. It's, it's those things that have been entrenched in your soul that you've got to dig up and dig out and cut off. Those are the ones that are hard to get rid of. It's not, it's not hard to shut the TV off. To give an illustration. Like, amen? It's not hard to shut the TV off. What's hard is to deal with the heart that is craving the kind of entertainment that you're imbibing in in that TV that's searching for it somewhere else. It's, It's hard to put that to death and to become settled and abiding in Christ. That's what's hard. Like, it's not hard at all for me not to... I'm boycotting the Super Bowl. I hope you know that. And I hope all of you will someday get to the point where you do that too. Not because I hate football. I love football. I love the sport. I played it. I love to watch it. But man, you're watching. I'm sorry. I don't. Please don't be upset with me. Don't be angry at me. But just, just recognize what the NFL is trying to do to our country. Sow more seeds of division. Right, create more factionalism, party line divides. Playing the Black National Anthem alongside the National Anthem. I thought there was only one National Anthem. I thought there's only one way to understand what it means to be an American. Right? Now I'm now I'm really on a soapbox, but like, <laughs> you know, the the more you give in to to receiving that kind of entertainment, the more the more you're giving to them. To, to, to accomplish exactly what they're trying to do. Shut it off. This is a war. <laughs> this is a war. Act like it, right? Okay, off of the political soapbox there. But in a spiritual realm, you're in a war as well. You are in a war in your soul, and, and whether you choose to fight in that war or not, your enemy is constantly going to be coming after you seeking to derail you and get you off of living a true and and holy and pure and empowered life of discipleship, life of following Jesus. So, yeah, even I went longer on that than I meant to, but, but the expectation of Christ, right? Chop off that hand that's a stumbling block to you. Gouge out that eye and cast it away from you because it's better for you to enter into life without a hand or without an eye, than it is to perish in hell with both. Jesus said that, not me. When was the, what was the last hand that you had to chop off for the sake of Christ? What was the last eye that you gouged out for the glory of His name? And when did that happen? We've got plenty of eyes, spiritually speaking, that need to be gouged out. Plenty of hands that need to be chopped off. Let's get to doing it. That's the war that we're in. All right. So that was two things we can learn about discipleship. Um, from verse 66, one is what the essence of discipleship is. It's leaving things behind to walk with Christ, following with Christ. And then it's not about how we begin. It's about how we end that matters. So we need to be diligent in, in pursuing the long-haul Christian life. Now, because for the majority, their discipleship was never about true devotion to Christ to begin with, the majority of these disciples in the crowd fall away. Now, we've looked at reasons why the crowd didn't remain, but I want you to notice the contrast between the way that the temporary disciples responded to Jesus and the way that true disciples responded to Jesus. The temporary disciples, if we just trace the steps through this entire interaction in John 6, the temporary disciples begin with grumbling. They then move on to quarreling. They're complaining. They're being offended over the teaching of Christ. And then ultimately they're departing. Those are the temporary disciples. What about the true disciples? How do they respond to the teaching of Christ? What Jesus says, or excuse me, it says here in John 6 that they responded to Jesus' teaching by remaining and confessing their faith more strongly. So the temporary disciples depart, the true disciples remain and are more resilient than ever as a result of Christ's teaching. Notice verse 67. With the great mass of disciples departing, Jesus turns to a specific group called the 12. Now just, this is the the only time that the 12 is mentioned as far as identifying a group, except for in chapter 20. So we know who we're talking about, right? We're talking about Simon Simon Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, Bartholomew, Thomas, uh, all those, all the way down to Judas Iscariot. So we're talking about the twelve. Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, do you also want to go away? Do you also want to go away? It's very interesting to me that Jesus is not asking or begging the twelve to stay. Isn't that interesting? If the great majority of you walked out of this room... (laughs) Never to come back again because I said something about the Super Bowl. I hope that's not the case. I love you if you watch Super Bowl. I'm not your judge. The Lord, the Lord is, I'm, I'm not trying to condemn you. But if you all said, that's the last straw, we're out of here. <laughs> all right? And only like 10 of you remained. I would definitely be trying to make sure that I did everything I could to keep the 10 from leaving. All right? I, I wouldn't turn to you and ask, do you want to go away as well? I wouldn't do that. But Jesus does that. He looks at them and he says, Do you want to go away too? Is this too much for you to handle? Is my teaching more than you can bear? It's very interesting to me. He's not asking them to stay, but he's asking if they have a desire to leave. Now, it's important. He's not asking this for his own sake, right? You know that. In John 6, 64, it says that he already knew those who were truly believing in him and those who were not believing in him. He was not trying to find out some kind of information as to whether or not they were going to stick around. He knew what was going to happen. But he puts this question to them as a test. To bring out of their mouths a confession of truth from their hearts, while everyone around them is departing from the faith. I think, I think D.A. Carson really captured it well when he said, the question, this question of Jesus is asked more for their sake than for his. They need to articulate a response more than he needs to hear it. They need to articulate a response more than he needs to hear it. You know, A.W. Pink, he pointed out that the same testing question is still being put to those who profess to be followers of Christ today. And in our day, there is plenty of opportunity for Jesus to look at us and ask us, do you want to go away as well? I've already taken too much time. I don't have time to get into this part of, of the application, but just let me, let, me, let me suffice it for me to say There's a little bubble right there. Suffice it for me to say it's under the pressure of conflict and contention over the claims of Christ that true Christian faith is purified and produces its most powerful confessions. It's when true believers are under the pressure of conflict and contention over the claims of Christ that their faith is purified and their confession becomes stronger. Have you ever noticed that? When the Lord's brought you into a situation with friends or family or coworkers where the pressure of being faithful to Christ is mounting, and you know that the cost of being faithful to Christ and and standing with Christ is going to be greater than it was before. And you feel in your soul, when you realize that, you feel in your soul some kind of power and confidence rising. Like, wait a second. No, I do believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I've come to recognize that by the Spirit of God. And then you stand and make the confession more boldly. Have you ever experienced that? I have. This is why the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. When persecution rises, the confession of those who are genuine and true becomes stronger and louder. And so I, let's bring that to today. In our own day, when the pressure of being a faithful Christian in our society is mounting, now it's nothing compared to what brothers and sisters go through around the world. I know that. But it's the beginning of something much greater that's coming. When the pressure is mounting in our day and we feel, the, the, we feel that tension of, of what's going to happen if I make my stand right now. And I declare faith in Christ and I stand firm in his word and according to his teaching I hold fast. when we feel that in our own day right now, we have an opportunity as well to be bolder in our declaration of faith in Christ. I need to move on, but... No, no, we we need to move on. I'm sorry, I'm a little out of sorts. I know you can tell that. Who said me to man. I feel you. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Don't be afraid to be martyred for the sake of Christ. It's going to produce great gains for the kingdom of God. The more you suffer for the glory of Christ, the more the seeds of the gospel are sown in this world. The more gains the church will see. Now, there are three things that these disciples confess as a true expression of their faith in Jesus. When everyone around them is falling away and the tension of being faithful to Christ is growing, there are three things that they express as a confession of their faith. And I just want to look at them briefly. Number one, they say, Lord, verse 68, do you want to go away as well? They respond, Lord, to whom shall we go? Lord, to whom shall we go? at the heart of true discipleship is a realization at the deepest level of your being that there is nowhere else for you to go except Jesus Christ. It's Jesus or nothing, in other words. You've recognized that you are in the city of destruction and that there's only one way of escape out of that city, and it is the gate that has Jesus the Messiah over the top of it. You recognize there's nowhere else to go, no matter how offended I get at, at what it's going to cost me to go through that gate, no matter what I've got to drop off behind me and leave aside and the sins I've got to depart from, no matter what I lose in this life in order to enter through that gate, there's no other gate for me to go through if I want to be saved. That's the heart of a true disciple. That's, something, that's a work of the Spirit of God that He accomplishes within you where Jesus is not just one of multiple ways to get to heaven. He's the way, and you've come to recognize that with such abandonment that it doesn't matter what you have to lose in order to go to Him. You're going, and there's nothing that's going to detract you from that. Lord, to whom shall we go? You. There's a second part of that confession. To whom shall we go? There's nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. It's another foundational element of true saving faith in Christ. It's a heartfelt devotion and attachment to his teachings. A recognition of the truth and the power and the wisdom and glory of his teaching. Yes, you recognize the truth and the power and the glory of his teaching, but you also experience the truth and the power and the glory of his teaching in your own soul where you can confess to Him with a clean conscience, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And I felt that. I know that. I've come to experience that and recognize it. The ministry of the word in our own souls, right? Confessing that. This is what Jesus is getting at in John 8, 31 and 32. When he says, if, if you're truly my disciples, you will abide in my word. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a liberating power and effect of the word. 1 Thessalonians two thirteen: In the heart of true disciples, the word of Jesus comes and effectually works within them. It accomplishes a work in them such that they're able to confess back to Him that He truly has the words of eternal life. Very much like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, 16, when He says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and they became to me a joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Why? Because I'm called by Your name, O Lord God of hosts. See, there's an attachment to the Word of God that is in the heart of a child of God. They recognize that, and they cannot deny it. And so the twelve weren't going anywhere because by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within them, they could sense the air of heaven in the words of Christ. They were able to discern the voice of God in His teaching, which is what led them to their conclusion, the third part of their confession in verse 69. They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ the Son of the living God. That's the confession of a disciple. An abiding state of assurance about the validity of the truth claims of Christ. Now I want you to notice, this is not a blind hope. That maybe Jesus is the right way and I'm going to take my chances. Right? Try Jesus. If If Jesus isn't real in the end, it won't matter anyway. Those kinds of thoughts. Uh, The the Henry Jones Jr. Uh, I I wanted to put Henry Jones in that quote. But the Indiana Jones picture, putting his hand over his heart and stepping out into that great chasm, just hoping that there's something under his feet that's going to catch him. That's not the confession or the hope of a true, true disciple of Christ. That's not an expression of genuine faith. It's faith in Christ, and what a disciple has come to recognize about Christ is a settled confidence that this truly is who Jesus is. That He is the Christ. He truly is the Son of the living God. And that we have come to know and to believe that. It's that Hebrews 11.1 conviction and assurance of things hoped for and things not seen. See, everything in the crowd of false disciples that they had failed to realize to be true about Christ, the 12, at least 11 of the 12, were able to discern for themselves. And the question I want to end on is, what made the difference? What made the difference between those who could discern the truth and those who couldn't? The language of verse 69 places a little more credit on the part of the 12 than I think is actually true. Uh, these verbs, if you, if you can read Greek, you see that these verbs are active verbs, which means it's something that the apostles believe that they have accomplished. It's not something that has happened to them. It's a state of existence that they think that they have achieved. And in verse 70, you know, I, I have believed. I have come to know this, to be true. I've entered in. To the path, Lord, I'm not going anywhere. Verse 70, Jesus corrects that and he says, No, the real reason that they believed was because he had chosen them. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? See, that's why they were believing and that's why they knew the truth. It wasn't because they had figured it out or somehow had done Jesus a favor. It was because the Father had given to them the privilege of coming to know and believe in His son. It's, this working through this reminded me of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20 verse six, when he tells the Lord, "In the integrity of my heart, I, I did not take Abraham's wife Sarah and, and, and take her as my own. I, I operated in the integrity of my heart. And the Lord says, yeah, yeah, I know that you did that. By the way, it was me who kept you from sinning in this way, and I am the one that did not let you do it, <laughs> right? That same kind of flavor is what we see here in John 6, 69 and 71, where the disciples are saying, no, in the integrity of my heart, I, we have believed, we have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turns around and says, it's because I chose you that you've come to know that. Why might that be important for these disciples to understand? Why might it be important for the disciples to know that Jesus had chosen them? Now, we're going to get to the fact that one of these 12 that Jesus chose is a devil. We're going to get to that next week, and I'll explain that more fully then. But why was it important for the 11 to know that Jesus had chosen them? Now, I think D.A. Carson, again, got it right <clears throat> with this quote. He said, Peter's way of expressing himself appears somewhat pretentious, as if he and his followers are a cut above the fickle disciples who have turned away, superior at least in insight. Right? They, they were able to discern something that everyone else wasn't able to discern. And, uh, and indeed, Peter's words might almost be taken to mean that he is doing Jesus a favor. But Jesus will not allow even a whisper of human pretensions. Ultimately, the twelve did not choose Jesus. He chose them. Why might it be important for you to understand that in following Christ, it wasn't because you chose to receive and follow Christ, it was because Christ chose you? What's significant about that? Does it have real practical bearing upon your life, or is it just something theoretical that people like to debate about? Well, I don't think Jesus ever spoke for the sake of theory, mere theory anyway. I think he spoke with intentionality, and he made things known to his disciples that were very important for them to keep in mind as they began living the life of discipleship with him. Why is it important for him to emphasize his choice of them to them? I think it's because they needed to learn that living the Christian life and being his disciples was not something that they were accomplishing in their own strength, and it was not some kind of favor that they were doing for his sake. If they were going to learn to abide in Jesus and truly feed upon him as the source of their life, then they had to have every pretension of somehow accomplishing their discipleship in their own strength removed. This this is the Christian life, in other words. What what does it mean to feed upon Christ, to, to drink his blood and to eat his flesh? It means that you have recognized that he is the only source of your life and strength, that he's it. And if you ever have a moment where you think that somehow you're doing this Christian thing in your own strength and you're going you're to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just get it done and somehow do God's will for you in your own strength, then my friend, you're mistaken and that is always going to fail. You're always going to collapse on your face when you have that kind of approach to living the Christian life. Jesus says the Christian life is lived by abiding in me. And in order to abide in him properly, we have to have every confidence, every false confidence in our lives removed for the sake of being his disciple. Even down to that initial point of becoming his disciple, Jesus wants us to know that from the very beginning, it's not about you. From the very beginning of your walk with Christ, it's not about what you figured out. It's not about what you could discern. It's not about what you chose to do. It's about what Christ is doing in you. And that's what gives true disciples real confidence and hope to move forward into the future. Because the one who was the same yesterday, today and forever, the one who does not change and therefore we are not destroyed, he's the one who chose to save me. And if he chose to save me in the beginning, will he not continue to choose to save me throughout all the way to the end? Yes, he will. That's the confidence of the Christian life, and that's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand at the end of this interaction in John 6. So may we take that to heart as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that it does minister to our hearts and the way that it does equip us to live lives of godliness and holiness and faith. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our souls by your spirit and truth this morning so that we would endure in living the life of discipleship, that life of leaving things behind and walking with Christ. Lord Jesus, give us grace to do that. And as we finish this service with our closing hymn and we have a benediction, God, may we recognize the ways that you are ministering to our hearts through your word even now. Lord, please move in us, sanctify us for the glory of Christ, and help us, Lord, as we take steps in your name. Help us take those steps in true strength, living for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Now, would you receive a benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5? Beginning in verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Father, that is our confidence, that you will surely complete the good work that you have begun in our lives. Give us grace to walk in that reality with hope, and hold fast to that hope firm to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May you go in the peace of the Lord.